Welcome to Books and Sound. I'm your host, Don Beavers, and this episode contains a digitally remastered theatrical presentation of one of the great works of literature. Please remember to subscribe so that you can enjoy new episodes as they are released. This podcast is provided free and offered without commercial interruption. If you enjoy the episode, please leave us a positive review so that we can grow the podcast. Enjoy. From the NBC University Theater, a first radio production of a novel that ushered in an era, F. Scott Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise. Our star, Mr. Guy Madison. We bring you a novel that exploded an idea. The idea that the Victorian code of manners still prevailed among the younger generation of America at the time of the First World War. This side of paradise documented a bolder and more garish set of manners and brought to literature for the first time the college slicker, the popular daughter, and the big man of the campus. It brought as well a unique and genuine feeling for American university life, a feeling that is pleasantly reflected in today's adaptation for radio by Alan Sergal. At intermission, we will bring you a recorded commentary on F. Scott Fitzgerald by the noted book critic of the New York Times, Mr. Orville Prescott. Here, then, is Guy Madison, starring in This Side of Paradise. first year of the present century, a queen died, leaving her name to an age and to a horse-drawn carriage. The carriage survived until the invasion of the automobile. And the automobile had its effect also on the brocaded remnants of the Victorian age. Stutz, Mabel, got us here in a shake, didn't it? And it's going to get this old snake to a lot more places before the night's over. Frankie, you sure? I've never been to a place like this in the country. Do you think maybe we'd better go back? And let this keen music go to waste? Come on, they're holding the door for us. Oh, but... But is for goat. <laughs> Hazel, George, shake a leg. Well, look at them. They seem to think that back seat is a parlor sofa. <laughs> Such were the heights to which our culture had attained when Queen Victoria was five years dead and the Ford three years old. That was the year Amory Blaine spent the tenth summer of his life doing the country with his mother, Beatrice. Mother was fond of describing her son as entirely sophisticated and quite charming, but delicate. In later years, Amory was to outgrow his delicacy, but at the age of ten, he was busily engaged in outgrowing a natural repugnance to chamber music and symphonies, and deriving a highly specialized education from the rich and radiant Beatrice. Amory. Yes, Beatrice? Oh, still in bed. How lovely. Comfortable? Very comfortable. Oh, that's lovely. Amory, I've just been down to the lobby. Oh, my dear, the women you see these days at the Waldorf. 
Westerners. They have accents, my dear. Accents? Oh, not southern accents or Boston accent. Not an accent attached to any locality, just an accent. Sort of moth-eaten London accents that are down on their luck and have to be used by someone, I suppose. Amory. Yes, Beatrice? You're not thinking of getting out of bed yet? No, I'm not. Well, don't, by all means. I've always suspected that early rising in early life makes one nervous. Clotilde's having your breakfast brought up. All right. Amory, my nerves are on edge. On edge. We must leave this terrifying place tomorrow and go searching for sunshine. And, Amory, yes? I want you to take a red-hot bath, as hot as you can bear it, and just relax your nerves. You can read in the tub if you wish. There's a new thing on Brahms and a gay study. I think it's a good thing. The English sausage roll had come over as the American hot dog, and the air in a remote section of Chicago was already undulating to the shimmy when Amory Blaine, in his teens and dramatically handsome, stopped off in New York on his way to St. Regis Prep School. Stopped off at the home of Monsignor Darcy, the family friend who was to become his spiritual father. The two men took to each other instantly. Monsignor Darcy? Amory Blaine. But, well, how did you... How did I know? Well, I've been expecting you for years. Besides, your mother wrote to me. Here, come in, sit down, we'll have a chat. Thank you. I'm on my way to school, uh, St. Regis, you know. Yes, yes, so your mother says. She's a remarkable woman. Uh, have a cigarette, Emery. I'm sure you smoke. Well, if you're like me, you'll loathe all science and mathematics. Hate them all. Like English and history. <laughs> well, of course. Well, you'll hate school for a while, too. I'm, I'm glad you're going to St. Regis's. Why? Well, because it's a gentleman's school, and democracy won't hit you so early. You'll find plenty of that in college. I want to go to Princeton, you know. Ah, yes, I rather thought you would. Somehow I think of Princeton as being lazy and good-looking and aristocratic. <laughs> you know, like, like a spring day. Harvard seems sort of indoors. Yes, and Yale is November, crisp and energetic. That's it. You know, I was for Barney Prince Charlie. Yeah, well, of course you were. And for Hannibal. Yes, and for the Southern Confederacy. Naturally, you were for the Irish Republic. Oh, well, as for that, I... Oh, a little skeptical. No, 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 you shouldn't be. Not you, Emery. The Irish Republic is a romantic lost cause, quite worthy of gentlemen's bias. And besides... Yes, sir? Well, the Irish are really quite charming. Oh, I didn't mean it in that way. Well, of course you did, Emery. You're a snob, in the best sense of the word. Well, so am I. I think it derives from the fact that not one person in the world is necessary to you and me. Well, perhaps you're not aware of that yet, Emery. The two men slipped into an intimacy from which they never recovered. And the late train that finally bore Amory Blaine to St. Regis was the train that bore him out of there two years later. In the intervening time, Amory cultivated the hothouse plant of his congenital snobbery. In the best sense of the word, of course. He selected his friends with aplomb and discrimination and bitterly resented the first rebuffs of his classmates. But as the months went by... Amory made his mark at St. Regis, distinguishing himself with gorgeous bruises and contusions on the football field, and winning the favor of those students who held the reins of power. And then suddenly he was in his last year, and Amory, a model of aristocratic diplomacy, had achieved power at St. Regis himself. He was an important man at school. All this, and then the train bore him away. 
somewhat more athletic, measurably more social, and only slightly less educated than when he had arrived. Amory Blaine was finally ready for the time he lived in. Ready in his case for the spires and gargoyles and all-night card games of reputedly the pleasantest country club in America, Princeton. Excuse me. Yeah, I'll pick up your bag. Didn't see you coming up the stairs. Well, that's all right. I can pick it up. Clumsy of me. You going to be an inmate of this asylum? This is 12 University Place, isn't it? It is, to my regret, lowly home of lowly freshmen and despair of all decent architects. <laughs> my name's Blaine. Emery Blaine. Blaine? Oh, yeah. Yours is the room in front. It's just a step. I'll show it to you. Very nice of you. You don't have to. No trouble. Just through here. And just off the main door. Right here on your left. Thanks. Not very posh, is it? It's a crime for the money we pay. And just drop your bags. Still, it's better than the campus. Yes. I hear there are so few freshmen there, they get lost. Have to sit around and study for something to do. Oh, miserable thought. You know, have I mentioned my name's Connage? Alec Connage. Glad to know you, Connage. Mind if I sit on the window seat? Like you to. Cigarette? Yeah, thanks. That's it. Just flop on the bed. Where'd you prep? St. Regis. You? Andover. Think you like Princeton? Well, frankly, I do. A lot of pep. I wouldn't have gone to Yale for a million. Me either. Going out for anything? Why, uh... Well, yes. I'm going to take a whack at freshman football. What about you? I'm going out for the Prince. The Daily Princetonian, you know. Of course, if I can't make it, I'll switch and try to manage some team instead. Hey, how'd you like to go to the jigger shop? The what? Uh, they call Sunday's jiggers here. The jigger shop. You can unpack later. Oh, I'd like that a lot. Well, then come on. I hear this is the best time of day to be there. And so it was the jigger shop for Amory and Alec. Sundays and bacon buns under the smiling picture of Allenby, who had beaten Yale almost single-handedly the year before. Then the movies, in the mortal presence of Langaduke, who promised to do the same against the blue this year. Supper at Joe's, vibrant, crowded, echoing with Gaelic comment and upper-class wit. And finally home along the tree-lined walks at quiet dusk. Amory felt the throbbing need to sit alone for a while on the front steps. And as he sat, the great tapestries of trees darkened to ghosts back at the last edge of twilight. And weaving over the night, in and out of the gossamer rifts of moon. Blaine fell in love with Princeton that night. Mind if I come in? Alec! By all means. Haven't seen much of you since our first day together. You know Tom Denville Ayers. Tom, not the fellow who writes that poetry in Nassau Lit. Oh, the same, I'm afraid. Hey, I'm glad I ran into you. It's been bothering me. Some of that stuff mean you right. There's one especially... Pia Pompeia? No, that's Goodman, too. The one I mean, I memorized it. It goes in... Here, let's see if I can remember it. Her toes are stiffened like a stork's in flight. 
She's laid upon her bed in white sheets. Her hands pressed on her smooth bust like a saint. Bella Kunitsa, come into the light. That's the one. I, I don't get it. Perhaps I don't get it myself. Don't you believe it, Gallic? Tom is brainy. He's got me writing poetry, too. Would you like... No. No what? No, I would not like to hear it. You've got the manners of a Yale man. He's bringing me up to date on my reading, too. Oh, seriously, Alec, you'd be amazed at the writers he's introduced me to. This fellow, Oscar Wilde, Bernard Shaw, Chesterton... Stop! You're making me feel illiterate. I don't have time to read. I'm too busy trying to be a writer. How you coming on the prints? They, they taking any of your stuff? Uh, some. Yeah, I've got some competition from you. I noticed a few pieces of yours in me. Accidents. Yeah, I thought you said your dish was going to be football. I had to give it up. Wrench my knee. Tom, you know what I think about our friend Blaine? No profanity now. Yeah, I think he's going to be that awful thing on the campus. A big man. Uh, I haven't decided. I might just thumb my nose at the whole thing and be a Princeton slicker. Slicker? What the devil's that? Well, it's something that... that... Well, at St. Regis, I didn't want to be one. There's a lucid explanation for you. The man's a born philosopher. No, really. A slicker is what I call a kind of a fellow who's everything the college big man isn't. And how do we distinguish these members of Blaine's category? Well, in the first place, a slicker has a clever sense of social values. He dresses well, but pretends the dress is superficial. Mm -hmm. The big man really thinks the dress is superficial. And he's quite stupid about social values. The slicker goes into activities that show him in the best light. The big man goes into everything from a sense of duty. The slicker... Well, you get the general idea. I'm afraid, Mr. Blaine, that you are being something less than lucid. Now, tell us, precisely, how do we recognize a slicker? By his hair. His hair? It's slicked. Heaven preserve us from Amory's theories. I think the least we can do under the circumstances is present him with a jar of pomade. Oh, now, see here... I don't mean to break into the start of a beautiful enmity. But have either of you fellas seen the papers lately? Why, anything serious? This new chap, Ruth, hasn't broken his pitching arm. He can't. I've got a bet on the Bostons. I mean this war that's broken out over there. Oh, that. That's got me concerned a bit. Well, not me. Don't you think it'll last? Don't much care. As far as I'm concerned, it's just a distant and faintly amusing melodrama. Only the actors are certainly bungling their parts at this point. Well, still, now, I... Now, don't be a bore, Tom. Forget your war. Let's recite, Alec, another one of your poems. The one about the serving lady and the white papers. And so, against the unheard sounds of the distant melodrama, Amory Blaine shouted poetry to the moon as life ran out sweetly at Princeton. Now did he neglect the other phases of his school education. He sharpened his card game, joined the staff of the Princetonian, played a female dancing girl in a triangle review, discovered at first hand that new American phenomenon, the petting party. And on the last night of a summer vacation at a country club dance, he met Isabel. You know, Isabel, you're a keen dancer. You do very well yourself. Don't you honestly think we're the handsomest pair on the floor? Really? You think I'm conceited? Well, no, just self-confident. There's a difference. I like self-confidence in a man. Well, I like honesty in a woman. Isabel, hmm? the din right here. Would you come in with me? Amory Blaine. 
Please come in with me. There's something terribly private I want to say to you. Oh, but I've never... Please. Well... Thanks. Right in here. Isabel. Close the door softly. There. Will I bother you? My eyes are a bit sensitive. Sit down. I don't mind. This couch? It is the most convenient, isn't it? Most comfortable, too. It is soft. Isabel, I don't know whether or not you you know what you... What I'm going to say... Lordy, Isabel, this sounds like a line, but it isn't. I know. Maybe we'll never meet again like this. I have darn hard luck sometimes. You'll meet me again, silly. I don't know. Isabel, I've fallen for a lot of people. Girls, and, and I guess you have, too. Boys, I mean. But honestly, you... What, Emery? Isabel, you know I'm mad about you. You do give a darn about me. Yes. How much do you care? Do you like anyone better? No. Isabel, I'm going back to college tonight for six long months. And why shouldn't we... If I could only have just one thing to remember you by. Can I kiss you, Isabel? Well, I... So, there you are, Emery. Well, I'm driving you to the station, I'm told. Oh, I'm leaving now. Oh, I hope I'm not uh, interrupting anything. Oh, no, no, not at all. Mr. Blaine had just finished telling me about his experiences at Princeton. And you were a very good listener. I found it all fascinating. Uh, we'll have to hurry, Amory. Well, Isabel, goodbye. Goodbye. See you later, Isabel. Now, Amory, the reason I have to leave early is that I promised my father to look in on a friend. Darn! I tell you, Tom, she's an angel. A sceptered angel. And tomorrow she'll descend right here at Princeton. Just so I can take her to the prom. Oh, you and your Isabel. She's probably mental. Come away from that window and stop simpering. And she does love me, Tom. How do you know she loves you? And how do you know you love her? You've only seen her that once. Letters, Tom. Haven't you noticed? We've been corresponding these past six months. Letters? Pamphlets? Those 25-page manuscripts you write oughtn't to be demeaned by calling them mere letters. You're a cynic. I'm a realist. Seriously, Amory, the way you've been letting things go, your math, failing in the regular exam, you ought to be quartered. On second thought, you're not a cynic at all. You're a sadistic melancholic. Now, whatever in the world does that mean? I don't know, but there was nothing lost in my filling that exam. They let me take a special, didn't they? Yes. And if you get a blue slip out of that one, too, you're the world's worst goofer. Your stock will go down like an elevator at the club and on the campus. It'll finish all chances of your becoming anything, much less Princetonian chairman. Look, Tom, I haven't got a blue slip out of it yet, and I won't get one. For one thing, you're forgetting the Blaine luck. And for another... I think it's darn middle class of you talking about math when I could be thinking about Isabel. Oh, what's the good? Forget I brought it up. Go back to your prep school dreams of you and your Isabel at the prom. Not at the prom, Tom. Outside the prom. Alone in a terrace retreat. Isabel and me. And the background music spreading a mood like mist from the moon. And she, deep in my arms, whispering with the music. Ouch! Let me go! What's the matter? Your shirt stud. It hurt me. Look. What? Oh, that spot on your neck. 
I am sorry, Isabel. I shouldn't have held you so close. Oh, but what are we going to do about it? Do about it? Oh, it'll disappear in a second. Oh, it won't. Look at it. It's getting worse. Oh, and it's just the height of your shoulder. Massage it. No, that'll just make my whole neck flame. What'll I do, Amory? <laughs> All the perfumes of Arabia will not whiten this little hand. You're not very sympathetic. Oh, Isabel, darling, I think it'll Don't go... touch me. Haven't I enough on my mind? And you stand there and laugh. Well, it is funny, Isabel. And we were talking before about a sense of humor being... Oh, shut up. I don't like to be laughed at. I'm not laughing now, am I? You did. Oh, don't be so darn feminine. I'll be anything I want. Perhaps then we'd better call it quits. Perhaps we'd better. I always thought you had a lot of self-confidence. But I'm not sure now it isn't conceit. Well, it isn't. Here at Princeton... Oh, you and Princeton. You think that was the world the way you talk. And while we're about it, I might as well tell you everything. What does that mean? It means I'm uncomfortable with you. I have to think all of the time I'm with you. You're so critical. Why, you analyze every little emotion and instinct until... Until I just don't have any. You mean I make you think? I mean you make me tired. I want to leave. Well, so do I. Before we do, there's just one more thing. What? That spot on your neck. Yes? It's gone. Amory. Hi, Amory. Back so soon from the prom? Not soon enough. Oh, like that, eh? You want me to leave? No, Alec. No, of course not. Alec brought up some mail for you. For me? Your returns from the math exam. It came after you left. So soon? What is it, the blue or pink? Don't know. I haven't opened it. It's right beside you there in the bureau. You sure you want me to stay? By all means. Hmm. We have here quite a slip of paper. Well, open it. Just to be dramatic... I'll let you know that if it's blue, my name is withdrawn from the editorial board of the Prince, and my short career is over. Watch my face, gentlemen, for the primitive emotions. Well? Pink or blue? Say what it is. Smile, I swear, something. Blue as the sky, gentlemen. It's made me feel like leaving college, Monsignor. Why? Oh, a cigar? Sherry? No, thanks. Why has it made you feel like leaving college? Well, because all my career has gone up in smoke. Oh, I know you think it's petty and all that. Mm, no, not at all petty. I think it's most important. And moreover, I think it's been a good thing for you. Oh, I don't follow. And let me put it this way. At birth, you were equipped with the fundamental paraphernalia of life. Now, we'll call it the... Basic Amory. I'm not doing much of a job of developing it, am oh, I? Oh, nonsense, my boy. You're continually in the process of developing the basic Amory. Developing it, tearing it down, and developing it again. That's the fun of it all. I'm afraid I don't understand, sir. Now, look, then. You start out as the basic Amory. Hmm? Under your mother's influence, you became something else. Amory plus Beatrice. In school at St. Regis pulled all that apart. Back to the basic Amory again, hmm? Yeah, exactly. Then it was the basic Amory plus St. Regis, and Princeton was tacked on. Something new was being made. But I've blotched it terribly. Oh, no, you haven't. You've merely failed to conform. In people like you and I, Amory, 
That can be something of a virtue. Now, you failed in mathematics, but mathematics failed too. It failed to overwhelm the basic Amory. His imaginative, rebellious spirit remains intact. Rather a roundabout way of justifying failure, isn't it? Well, you've done nothing but return to the basic Amory again. That, that's good. Why? It's given you time to think. You're casting off a lot of your old luggage about success and the Superman and all. Success for the sake of dominating others. I, people like you and me would make fools of ourselves trying to do that. Then what should I do? Do the next thing that has to be done. Forget all this high-handed business of blind dominance. Be what you are. A personage, not a mere personality like some, uh, ooh, bathing girl or class president. But, Monsignor, I, I can't ever seem to do the next thing. Well, I can do the hundred things beyond, but, but never the next thing. <laughs> well, Amory, between you and me, I have only just learned to do it myself. But does that mean I must stop being eccentric? Stop posing? I know I must pose a great deal. No, not at all. For you, not posing may be the biggest pose of all. Be what you must be. Don't try to be a success. And, Emery. Yes? Do the next thing. So Emery Blaine went back to college to do the next thing. To seek, to stir, to mold his youth. And the days passed serenely again at Princeton. And it was almost with a serenity that the distant melodrama began forming its own company in the thin shadows of the Princeton spires. The war marched onto the campus into tombs that spring, and Amory and Tom applied for commissions in the infantry. And for the last time then the night came that was to be the last. Tom and Amory, bound in the morning for different training camps, paced the shadowy walks and seemed still to see around them the faces of the men they knew. The grass is full of ghosts tonight. The whole campus is alive with them. And what we see is more than this class, Amory. It's the whole heritage of gorgeous youth that has rioted through here in 200 years. We've walked arm in arm with Burr and Light Horse Harry Lee through half these deep blue nights. Goodbye, Aaron Burr. You and I knew strange corners of life. Spires against the sky. And blue lights on the roofs. The torches are out, Emily. The torches are out. Hollywood, the NBC University Theater, is bringing you Guy Madison in a radio version of F. Scott Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise. If you are interested in supplementing your enjoyment of these NBC University Theater productions with home study under college supervision, be sure to listen to the announcement at the close of this program. And now, our intermission commentator, Mr. Orville Prescott, literary critic of the New York Times. Mr. Prescott. Nine years ago, when Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald died at the age of 44, he seemed well on the way of becoming one of America's forgotten writers. But since then, he has been rediscovered, much sooner than most writers, 
who, if they are rediscovered at all, usually have to wait several generations. Critics have written at length about the significance of this sad and ultra-sophisticated young man, who practically invented the Jazz Age single-handed. Anthologies of his works have appeared, and today a new movie version of his best novel, The Great Gatsby, is on view everywhere. Fitzgerald's first book was This Side of Paradise, which was written when he was only 23, right after the end of the First World War. I don't think that it is a very good novel, but it was a typical one. It provides good evidence of what a Fitzgerald book is like, and the kind of thing he did so much better when he wrote The Great Gatsby. This Side of Paradise shocked and delighted a host of readers in 1920. It introduced a whole new subject into modern fiction, it was bright with youthful charm. The subject was the revolt of youth in the 19-teens against the conventional customs of the last century. Fitzgerald was the first to write of kisses in parked cars, of respectable girls drinking and escaping from parents and chaperones, of the foolish escapades of college boys. He wrote of such things with the exact itemization of a social reporter, and also, unfortunately, in this side of paradise, with sophomoric literary raptures. This is undoubtedly the way it was in Minneapolis, in New York, and at Princeton. Many people saw only the tinsel glitter, the rich young people behaving badly. They did not see that Fitzgerald was intently serious in his search for some significant value in a chaotic society. Fitzgerald made that search more interesting and meaningful in later books, but he never did find an answer. In this side of paradise, the search itself is pretty well lost behind all the nonsense of his hero, Amory Blaine. This is the story of a handsome, clever, vain, and spoiled young man, a social and an intellectual snob whose greatest need was to be admired by others. Amory Blaine was interested in books and ideas, but more interested in girls and social success. His story is only a series of scenes, the young egoist as a college boy, as a literary romantic, as a disillusioned but aristocratic social rebel. Amory Blaine is the only interesting and believable character in the book, and he was undoubtedly Fitzgerald himself. But in spite of its silly girls who are only mere names, in spite of its embarrassing overriding, there is distinction in this book. It shows on every page that it is written by an extremely talented, if undisciplined, writer. Fitzgerald, at 23, knew more about American society with a capital S than any writer since Edith Wharton. In later books, he was to prove that he could write about it much better than he did in this feverish, brittle, romantic, clever, and somehow trashy book. Thank you, Mr. Orville Prescott. Our radio version of This Side of Paradise, starring Guy Madison, will continue from Hollywood after a brief pause for station identification. Nineteen eighteen, nineteen nineteen, and a country danced its way from war to peace, and less and less frequently looked over its shoulder at the late unpleasantness. As it did for so many young men, the war passed quickly into the mists of memory. Amory, Tom, and Alec returned to America, their education behind them, 
and their lives stretching awesomely in front of them. They returned with dreams and ambitions and youth and fire, and immediately bent and bowed to the altar of shimmering peace, compounded jointly of victory parades, high prices, the new jazz. The three Princeton men clung together, sharing bachelor quarters in a west side flat in New York, while across the town, in the pink and cream boudoir of an unlikely mansion on East 62nd Street, the great personal crisis that neither war, peace, nor the impending 18th Amendment had quite provoked in Amory Blaine was slowly forming for him out of the silk and scent of a debutante's party preparations. Oh, Mother, it's all too impossible. My coming out weekend. Well, I can't seem to find a thing I'm looking for. Well, what is it you're looking well, for? Well, it's my... Oh, never mind, I've got it. Celia, why? Stop pulling that shawl like some retarded spaniel. I have to wear it, you know. I don't see why. I think it's dreadful. Oh, Mother, tell oh, me. Oh, girls, girls. Oh, this is just when I was her age. Did I go I on like... hello. Oh, oh. oh. Hi, Alex. Hello, Mother, Celia, Rise. Oh. Thought I'd stumbled in on the wrong family for a minute. Amory Blaine's here. Well, goodness, take him downstairs. Oh, he is downstairs. Well, then you can show him where his room is. Tell him that I'm sorry. I can't meet him now. Well, he has heard a lot about you all. I wish you'd hurry. He's sort of temperamental. Temperamental? How do you mean temperamental? He used to say that about him in letters. I write stuff. Does he play the piano? No, I don't think so. Drink? Yes, nothing queer about him. Money? Good Lord, ask him. He used to have a lot. He's got some income now. Alec, of course we're glad to have any friend of yours you here. You ought to meet Amory. Well, of course I want to. But I think it's so childish of you to leave a perfectly good home to go and live with two other boys in some impossible apartment. Anyways, your Mr. Blaine will be a little neglected tonight. This is Rosalind's week, you see. When a girl comes out, she needs all the attention. Well, then prove it by coming here and hooking me. Yes, dear. Cecilia, talk to Alec for a minute. All right. Rosalind hasn't changed a bit. Oh, she's gotten worse. She's awfully spoiled. She'll meet her match tonight. Emery Blaine? Emery Blaine. Well, Rosalind still has to meet the man she can't outdistance. Honestly, Alex, she treats men terribly. She abuses them and cuts them and breaks dates with them and yawns in their faces. And they come back for more. And they love it. They hate it. She's a, she's a, a sort of a vampire, I think. And she can make girls do what she wants. Only she hates girls. Her personality runs in our family. I guess it ran out before it got to me. <laughs> Does she behave herself? Not particularly well. Oh, she's average. Smokes sometimes, drinks punch, frequently kissed. Oh, yes, common knowledge. One of the effects of the war, you know. Not there now. you are. Now, we finished, so I can go down and meet your friend, Alice. You finished? I've just begun. I've got to put on my rouge and my scent yet. You look handsome, Roz. Oh. Like your costume. Thank you. Oh, but honestly, there are only two costumes in the whole world that I really enjoy being in. One's a hoop skirt with pantaloons, and the other's a one-piece bathing suit. Oh, Rosalind. Well, I'm quite charming in both of them. <laughs> glad you're coming out. Yes, aren't you? You're glad so you can get married and live on Long Island with a fast, younger married set. You want life to be a chain of flirtations with a man for every link. Want it to be one? You mean I found it to be one? It must be an awful strain. Actually, it is. And sometimes when I feel particularly radiant, I I wonder why it should all be wasted on one man. <laughs> I wonder why it should be wasted on one family. Hey, this is too disillusioning for a man. Come on, Mother. Cecilia. Must 
Unquestionably. See you later, Roz. I'll be back, Rosalind. I think it's very dishonest hiding your real face behind a rouge box. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought... Oh. You're Amory Blaine, aren't you? Wouldn't you meet the family on the stairs? No, I, I came from the other way. I'm afraid I'm lost. Oh, well, do come in. Oh, it's all right. Mother will be right in, unfortunately. You're Rosalind? Yes. <laughs> Sit down, won't you? Not quite yet, thanks. I'm intrigued. This is a new sort of wrinkle for me. Oh? Uh, this room. Oh, this is no man's land. And you? Well, I didn't know you were, were like this. Well, what did you expect? Oh, I thought you'd be sort of well, sexless. You know, swim, play golf. Well, I do, but not in business hours. Business? Uh-huh. 6 p.m. to 2 a.m., strictly. I'd like to have some stock in the corporation. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a corporation. It's just Rosalind Unlimited. 51 shares, name, goodwill, and everything go at $25,000 a year. Sort of a chilly proposition. When I meet a man who doesn't bore me to death after two weeks, perhaps it'll be different. Odd. You have the same point of view on man that I have on women. Well, I'm not really feminine, you know, in my mind. Go on. No, you. You go on. <laughs> You've made me talk about myself, and that's against the rules. The rules? My own rules. I I hear you're brilliant. <laughs> the family expects a great deal of you. How encouraging. Alex said you taught him to think, did you? Oh, I didn't believe anyone could. No, I'm really quite dull. Liar. I'm I'm religious, I'm literary. I've I've even written poems. Oh, vers libre. Splendid. Uh, the the trees are green, the birds are singing in the trees, and the girl sips her poison, and the birds fly away, and the girl dies. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that kind. I like you. Don't. Oh, modest, too. I'm afraid of you. I'm always afraid of a girl until I've kissed her. My dear boy, the war is over. So I'll always be afraid of you? I suppose you will. Listen, this is a frightful thing to ask. After five minutes? But will you kiss me? Or are you afraid? I'm never afraid, but your reasons are so poor. Rosalind, I really want to kiss you. Emery? Yes? So do I. Well, is your curiosity satisfied? Is yours? No, it's only aroused. Oh, I was afraid of that. You don't strike me as the kind of girl who would be afraid of anything. Oh, that's just a manner of speaking. I'll tell you what kind of a girl I am. I'm bright. I'm quite selfish, emotional and aroused, fond of admiration. You know, I don't want to fall in love with you. Well, nobody asked you to. But I probably will. I love your mouth. Oh, not my mouth. Everybody falls in love with my mouth. It's quite beautiful. It's too small. It's heavenly. I want to kiss you again. You're quite sentimental, aren't you? No, I'm I'm romantic. A sentimental person thinks things will last. A romantic person hopes against hope that they won't. Sentiment is emotional. Oh, and you're not. <laughs> you probably flatter yourself that that's a superior attitude. Nevertheless, you mustn't argue, Rosalind. Kiss me again. I think I will, Emory. 
I think I'll kiss you several times. Hear what the Victrola's playing? Uh-huh. Kiss me again. Well? Oh, darling. Dearest, does it seem two weeks we've known each other? Oh, have we ever not known each other? Oh, you're so much apart. So much all of me. Rosalind, I'm, I'm so happy that I'm frightened. Wouldn't it be awful if this was, was a high point? Oh, it isn't, darling. Oh, darn, the Victrola stopped. <laughs> the industrial age intruding on our romance. I'll fix it. Why did you say that? Say what? That I'd fix it? Well, I will. I'll turn it off. No. No, the first part. What first part? Oh, about the industrial age? Amory, I... I know this is the wrong time, but... Well, Mother asked me, and... It never occurred to me, but... But Mother asked. Oh, you won't be angry, darling? What is it? Well, no, I won't be angry. Well, you know how she is about... Do I have any money? Oh, I didn't ask it. I thought Alec told you. No. Mother's rapid transit stocks. I just received a letter. They've gone down to bottom. Oh. They're thinking now of selling the house. Oh, but but your job? At the advertising agency? Uh-huh. Copy hack. $35 a week. Oh, Amory, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Come sit by me. That mean you don't care about your rich and handsome Mr. Dawson Ryder either? Dawson? Well, how did you know? Alec told me. Told me he's been pursuing you for months with offers. And for months I've been turning down his offers, million by million. Oh, oh, but let's not, not talk about it, dearest. I'm yours. Oh, Amory, I belong to you. Oh, you, you've got to, darling. I'm nothing without you. You've got to belong to me. I do. And I love being in your arms this way. Tell me. Tell you what? What I want you to tell me. You know. I want to hear you say it. I... I love you, darling. And I worship you, dearest... Rosalind, I'm leaving now. Huh? Oh, oh, goodbye, Mother. And I've asked you twice, who's coming tonight? Who? Well, well, Amory, you have so many admirers lately that I couldn't imagine which one. Dawson Ryder is more patient than I thought he'd be. No, Mother, please. Oh, I won't interfere. You've already wasted over two months on a theoretical genius who hasn't a penny to his name. But go ahead, waste your life on him. I won't interfere. Oh, Mother, can't you understand? Well, with Amory, I'm I'm not just just not thinking about money. Hmm. You never keep it long enough to think about it. Well, once I thought I'd marry a ton of it out of sheer boredom. Well, for the life of me, I can't see what's so exciting about Amory Blaine. Oh, Mother, he's he's penniless. He, well, he has a little income. It wouldn't buy your clothes. Oh. Rosalind, it's it's not as if your father could help you. Things have been hard for him lately, and he's an old man. You'd be absolutely dependent on a dreamer, or a nice, well-born boy, but a dreamer. Oh, for heaven's sake. Oh, there he is. Well, I'll get it. 
On my way out. Oh, Mother, Mother, try at least to make him think you're glad to see him. There's no need at this date to coach me socially, Rosalind. Good evening, Mrs. Connick. Emily, I was just leaving. Rosalind's just inside. She's expecting you. Thank you. Now, don't you keep her up too late. Amory! Yes, dear? Oh, Amory. Oh, that's it. Hold me, dearest, close. What is it, darling? Oh, Amory, we're so darn pitiful. Rosalind. I want to die. Rosalind, don't. Not again. Another night of this and I'll go to pieces. Well, you've been this way for four days now. What's the matter? Sit down, Amory. Not yet. What is it? It's Dawson Ryder, isn't it? You've been with him every afternoon. He's working on your nerves. People come and tell me they've seen you together. And I have to smile and nod and pretend it hasn't the slightest significance for me. What has been going on? Amory, if you don't sit down, I'll scream. Oh, Lord. Well, that's better. Oh, you know I love you, don't you? Yes? You know that I'll always love you. Don't talk that way. You frighten me, and it sounds as if we weren't going to have each other. Rosalind, let's get married. Next week. Oh, we can't. Why not? We can't. I, I'd be your squaw in some horrible place. We'll have 275 a month. Oh, darling, I don't even do my own hair. I'll do it up for you. <laughs> Thanks. Rosalind, you can't be thinking of marrying someone else. Tell me. You leave me in the dark. I can help you fight it out if you'll only tell me. It's just us. Oh, we're pitiful, that's all. The very things we love about us are the things that will always make us failures. Go on. Oh, well, it is Dawson Ryder. He's so reliable. I, I almost feel that he'd be a, a background. But you don't love him. I, well, you don't, do you? No. But, oh, I know it's a cliche, but I respect him. Rosalind. Rosalind. Oh, darling, can't you see it? It's been so perfect, you and I. So like a dream I'd long for and never thought that I'd find. I can't see it fade out into a, a colorless atmosphere. It won't. It won't. I'd rather keep it as a... Well, keep it tucked away so that I can remember it beautifully. Rosalind, women can do that perhaps, but not men. I'd remember not the beauty, but, but just the bitterness. Don't. All the years, never to see you, never to kiss you. Just a gate, shut, and barred. Oh, Amory, you're young. I'm young. What has that got to do with it? Well, it has a lot to do with it. People excuse us now for our poses and our vanities, for treating people like the devil and getting away with it. The excuses now. Oh, but you've got a lot of knocks coming to you. And you're afraid to take them with me. Oh, Amory, I'm yours. You know it. But I can't marry you and ruin both our lives. We've got to take our chance for happiness. Rosalind, we're on each other's nerves. It's just that we're both high-strung, and this week... No, Amory, it's not just that. Oh, don't you understand? I can't be shut away from the trees and the flowers, cooped up in a little flat waiting for me. You'd hate me in a narrow atmosphere. I'd make you hate me. But, Rosalind... Oh, darling, go. Don't make it any harder. I can't stand it. Do you know what you're saying? Do you mean forever? Can't you see? I'm taking the hardest course, the strongest course. You're afraid of taking two years' knocks with me? No. Marrying you would be a failure, Amory. And I never fail. Rosalind, I... I don't understand you. We do love each other. We do. 
don't we? Am we? There was a poem I read somewhere. I don't want to hear any poetry. Oh, listen oh. to this, Amory. You speak of love. Oh, this is the poem. For this is wisdom, to love and live, to take what fate or the gods may give, to ask no question, to make no prayer, to kiss the lips and caress the hair. Speed passion's ebb as we greet its flow, to have and hold, and in time, let go. That's fine. Poetry. The words are sweet and shiny. Now, what do you want me to do? Get my hat and go to the movie and forget the whole thing? No, Amory. For all your words, it's true, isn't it? You're afraid of a few a few years' hard knocks. You're afraid of our life together because it wouldn't be the same as our life apart. I wouldn't be the same person the Rosalind you love. But I can't give you up. I can't, that's all. I've got to have you. Amory, you're being a child. Well, I don't care. You're spoiling our lives. Oh, well, it's the other way around. Oh, I've told you, Amory... Our marrying like this, that would spoil our lives. I'm doing the wise thing. The only thing. You mean marrying Dawson Ryder? No. No, I mean giving you up. Are you really going to marry him? Oh, don't ask me. You know I'm old in some ways. In others, well, I'm just a little girl. I like sunshine and pretty things and cheerfulness. And I dread responsibility. I don't want to think about pots and kitchens and brooms. I want to worry whether my legs will get slick and brown when I swim in the summer. But you love me. That's just why it has to end. Drifting hurts too much. We can't have any more scenes like this. Rosalind, I promise that... What are you doing? Not my ring. Oh, at least keep that. Take it, Amory. Oh, keep it, please. Don't break my heart. You've got to. Take it. Oh, Lord. And don't ever forget me, Emily. Oh, Lord. I want to die. Amory Blaine. Haven't seen you since Princeton. What are you doing here at the Biltmore Bar? Oh, you've had a couple, haven't you? Had more than a couple. Celebrating. Celebrating what? Celebrate blow my life. Bartender, another the same. Triple rye. Real pleasure to drink with a college fella. What do you say your name was? Blaine. Hey, Sam! Another drink for my friend. What was your last name? Blaine. Not a drink for my friend Blaine Blaine. A Bronx. Double. Hey, no vagrants here. Sorry, I've got money. Miss Scotch. Chin straight. Make it a... Hey, Mac, give me a hand. This guy's keeled over. up, Amory? Tom. Ooh, easy, Amory. Take it by stages. Tom, where have I been? Everywhere. How long? Three weeks. Three weeks? How'd you find me? I didn't. I couldn't. They brought you here. You know, I feel better, Tom. Well, I feel rotten, but I feel better. Know what I'm saying? Yes. 
First flush of pain. It's the worst. I'm over that. I know. Tom. Yes? My job. Have I still got my job? Uh, no. Fired? Matter of fact, you quit. I quit? Told off your boss to his face. I hear it was beautiful. No. I must have been frightful. I'm told you were superb. When did all, all this happen? What day is it? Well, let me see a paper. It's July 2nd. Well, let me see a paper. Rest a while, Amory. What's the matter? What's in the paper? Nothing, only well, I... Let me see it. It's right there. Well, well, just a minute. What are you doing? I'm folding it back to the sports page. No, I... don't fold it. I want to see the page you were reading. But I... All right, Amory. Here. Only I hoped you'd wait until you were more fit. You see, I... Tom! Oh, I know. She's really marrying him. This chap, Ryder. But you knew that no, she I was... No, I didn't know. I, I didn't actually believe it. Oh, Tom. Pain. It's all come back. I, I don't think I can bear it. Emery. Emery, where are you going? Why are you putting on your clothes? Where are you going? I'm going to see Monsignor Darcy. I've got to. He's the only one that can help now. Emery. What? Haven't you really heard anything while you were around? What do you mean? Heard what? Monsignor Darcy. What about him? I thought certainly you'd heard that. What about Monsignor Darcy? He died five days ago. It's starting to rain, Amory. We must look a queer pair sitting on a deserted pier in the rain. Good old Tom. You don't have to stay, Tom. I'm all right now. I think the funeral did it for me. It was a fine funeral, wasn't it? Magnificent. I'd never seen a Catholic funeral before. I'd never seen a Catholic funeral like that before. No, really, Tom, I'm all right. The Monsignor always could set things right for me. And apparently his power extends even into death. Are you certain, Amory? You seem so... so lonely. Lonely and disillusioned. I am, Tom. Stripped clean. But I think I see myself clearly at last. You know, Tom, to watch all those people grieving today, substantial people, real grief, it made me suddenly see myself in Monsignor's image. And I found in that image something I'd always wanted. Always would want. Not to be admired as I'd feared. Not to be loved as I'd made myself believe. But to be necessary to people. To be indispensable. Tom... Back there, life opened up in one of its amazing bursts of radiance. And suddenly and permanently, I rejected an old epigram that had been playing all these years in my mind. You know it. Very few things matter. And nothing and... matters very much. On the contrary, Tom. A great deal matters. That's the knowledge I mean to start life with. That and nothing else? No money? I have $24. How will you get along? I'll get along. People make money in books, and I found I can always do the things people do in books. Really, they're the only things I can do. Where will you go? First, Tom, I'm going home. To draw for a bit on the last place of remembered happiness. Home? To the Middle West? No, Tom. Home to Princeton.
So Amory Blaine came home to Princeton, came on foot, and arrived in the young hours before dawn. Silently, he stood in the soft, ringing darkness, ghostly night watcher over a new generation, a generation shouting the old cries, learning the old creeds, dedicated more than the last to the fear of poverty and the worship of success, grown up to find all gods dead, all wars fought, all faiths in men shaken. Amory Blaine, sorry for them, was still not sorry for himself. He stretched out his arms, and his words rose, windborne, to the crystalline sky. I know myself, but that is all. have been listening to This Side of Paradise, an NBC University Theater production of the novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald, starring Guy Madison. If you wish to expand your knowledge and appreciation of literature, we suggest that you might enjoy the college-supervised courses now being offered in connection with the NBC University Theater. These courses are offered by the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma, Kansas State Teachers College, and the University of Louisville. For full information as to how you may enhance your knowledge through these home study courses, write to NBC University Theater in care of the University of Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, the University of Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Kansas State Teachers College, Pittsburgh, Kansas. Let me repeat that. Write to NBC University Theater in care of the University of Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, the University of Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Kansas State Teachers College, Pittsburgh, Kansas. Next week, be with us again at the NBC University Theater for a dramatization of a fine English novel. Elizabeth Bowen's The Death of the Heart, starring Maureen O'Sullivan. And the following week, one of the richest of the new American historical novels, The Big Sky. This Side of Paradise was prepared for radio by Alan Sergal, starred as Amory Blaine, Mr. Guy Madison, who appeared for the courtesy of David O. Selznick, producer of A Portrait of Jenny, starring Jennifer Jones and Joseph Cotton. Our cast included Gain Whitman, narrator, Peter Rankin as Frank, Jerry Farber, young Amory, John Daner as Monsignor Darcy, Tom Holland as Alec, Lee Millar as Tom, Gloria Grant was Isabel, Lynn Allen as Rosalind, Georgia Bacchus, Mrs. Connage, Inga Yolis, Cecilia, your announcer, Don Stanley. Our intermission commentator was Orville Prescott, whose commentary was recorded. The original music score was composed and conducted by Dr. Albert Harris. The director of the NBC University Theater is Andrew C. Love. <laughs>